Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to Barbican Screen Talks, where we bring you never-before-broadcast conversations with leading filmmakers and film fans, recorded at the Barbican Cinemas. Previously in this series, we've heard from a range of acclaimed film directors, from prolific elder statesman Ken Loach to young innovator Ben Wheatley. However, this podcast is slightly different, as we hear from one of the most in-demand film composers working today. Coventry-born Clint Mansell started his career as the lead singer and guitarist of late 80s indie rock heroes, Pop Will Eat Itself. But he's come a long way since performing their hit Get the Girl, Kill the Baddies on top of the Pops in 1993. Following the band's breakup in the mid-90s and a move to New York, an introduction to the then-fledgling filmmaker Darren Aronofsky led to a hugely successful career change. Mansell and Aronofsky began a creative partnership that has lasted six films and counting. So far, the composer's career has encompassed scores for Aronofsky's The Wrestler and Black Swan, as well as Moon by Duncan Jones, Ben Wheatley's High Rise, and the live-action adaptation of classic Japanese manga Ghost in the Shell. And his theme from Requiem for a Dream has been adopted by everyone from the makers of Lord of the Rings and Top Gear to the Boston Red Sox. In this conversation from 2014, Clint Mansell talks to critic Ian Hayden-Smith about the film that started it all, 1998's Pi. His first collaboration with Darren Aronofsky, Pi was a wildly experimental work made on a budget of less than $70,000. The claustrophobic thriller follows a tormented mathematician in his obsessive search for the mathematical patterns he believes are underpinning the world. In the interview you're about to hear, Mansell discusses his love of John Carpenter, the importance of really taking your time when composing for a film, and why he hates the city of New York. But first, a note. True to his roots, Mansell is fond of an expletive or two. Once a rock star, always a rock star. So, if strong language concerns you, please proceed with caution. There is some very strong language in this podcast and the occasional sexual reference. Still here? Good. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with Clint Mansell. Um, it's amazing that this film really hasn't aged. I, I still think it's the best film we've done, to be honest. Uh, the, the script and the, the film itself is just so lean, and there's something about 
doing what you do for a long time that actually is a detriment to what you do because that film was made with a serious lack of knowledge, a serious lack of care of what was going on in the industry or what movies are supposed to be. It was made purely, I think, I think, from the heart, you know? And th there's an arrogance that comes with not knowing stuff. You, you think everything else sucks and fuck it, we're going to show you, show you how it's done, you know? And that 15, 20 years later, you're trying to make a hit movie? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But there's an innocence about it that, that's just fantastic, I think, you know? I really like this film. There's a real sense watching the film that there's... It, it, it's rare that you get experimentation on every front. It, it feels like there was a sense of freedom that you had with the music, that you could go anywhere. But also Darren himself, he'd made some shorts before, but it was just, let's, let's do anything we possibly can. Well, the thing was, A, we had no money to make the film, and B, there was no industry involved in it. And, and originally, I was only going to write an opening title piece. Um, Darren wanted sort of pre-existing electronic music to be the score of the film. I mean, I suppose, you know, in a way like, you know, like Kubrick used pre-existing music in 2001, you know, it had a, that type of idea, but the reality of it was that um, he didn't have any money to get those pieces of music and he didn't have any industry contacts to be able to do it. So every time they didn't, they couldn't get a piece of music, I, I had to write a piece to replace it. What you're basically saying is you were cheap. Well, well, the thing, yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, he, he didn't know anybody else who could write music, and I could barely write music, really. I mean, there's a lot of naivety going on. And when you haven't got anybody around you telling you yes, no, whatever, you just follow your instincts, you do what you think is right, and then you figure it out as to whether it actually works for you, you know. And through that, we sort of found the power, if you like, of a bespoke piece of music written for a scene and um and like i say it was just down to what we wanted it wasn't somebody else saying oh well you can't do that you can't do this you shouldn't do that it was just purely what we were doing and i think that's almost like a moment in time you can't recapture you can't pretend to it's like losing your virginity really you can't do it twice you know and um it, it worked i think it worked anyway you know i mean and the score is sort of drum and bass influence which i was very wary of because I kind of wanted to do that music but I didn't think I was kind of cool enough or the, the guys that were making that music would frown upon us doing it but you know when it came back people really embraced it you know I mean and we just like I said we just did what we wanted to do and I just think that's it's just something that's so lacking most often in, in, in film and music even these days people just want to be fucking successful you know and it's like do something that really you care about and you believe in, and I, I think that's what that film was. You know, but what's in, what's interesting with it? You say about the drum and bass is that, like subsequent works you've composed for film, it, you mix so many different elements that there's never a sense that you feel locked into a moment in time. Thinking about your work with Slash right, on right. Wrestler, right, right. Um, when I think of Slash and I, I think of his work with Guns and Roses, it, it's so locked in a moment in time. And yet the guitar that he plays on The Wrestler, as well as having this very mournful air to it, it also doesn't feel like oh, I'm working on a moment in time. And that, in a way that reflects Darren's work, right. that it's not specifically to a moment. When you're writing a score, and I, and I say this in loose terms because I know I've done, I've done quite a lot of films now, but I mean, I still to this day don't really see myself as much of a musician really. But what I'm trying to do or what I'm trying to capture is what's going on in that film, you know, what that moment is. And 
if you're working on the right film, if you and if you can capture it, hopefully you will get something that you know your sense will tell you that like oh that's trendy what you're doing there, or that's last week or whatever. You you have to work really hard to find things that just hopefully encapsulate what that story is, and you can't do it just alone with the music. It, it comes from the project itself. I mean, Darren doesn't really do things that are identifiable as somebody else. He has a very distinct mm. voice of his own, you know. So every collaborator that he has, from his cinematography to the script to the production design, whatever, kind of has to join in with that. If you're too sort of on the nose somewhere with something, his film will tell you, you know, that it, that's not working. And like with Noah, which obviously is the complete other extreme yeah. of Pi... But when we were recording the score for that, even though I'd written all the, the music, we, we would still try things on the stage with the musicians and that. Every time we tried something that was just pure, if you like, for instance, you've got a D chord or an A chord and it's that's the sound it is. Any time we tried something pure like that, it just would react weirdly with the film. You would have to go for a, you know, an off chord, whatever that might be in that particular sequence you were doing. Because... That's what's stamped into the film that he's made, you know. And you've got to be awake to recognise that, you know, because the film will always tell you what it wants. Even if we'd had the budget for Noah that we had with Pi, I think we still would have done that score because that's what it needed to be, you know. I, I think that's the thing when you're working with a very distinctive director, with a vision. Yeah. And that vision is uncompromising in many ways. Well, because they stamp that in from, from the get-go. You can all start here... And then little decisions you make. I mean, there's the mainstream and box office beauty and millions of dollars, if you like. But every decision you make sort of takes you off that way. But that may take you to a far more interesting place, you know. That I talked about it with some friends that had watched... Uh, and, and these are people from... Actually, it's like a, a football crowd, because I'm a football fan, but... You they, sort of, they won't hold that against you. No, but, but you meet different people in that, that sort of crowd, you know, and like uh, some of them had watched uh, Dario Argento Suspiri and had just thought it was absolute rubbish, you know. But the interesting thing is there, it's like you have a guy like that that goes out on a limb and pushes that envelope, but then it comes back to the mainstream a little bit where we did Black Swan that really does capture people and, and it, it becomes a mainstream thing, even though... It's very influenced by that side of the work, you know, and um, it's important to do those things that, whether they're successful or... We're all consumers now, you know, and, and like, everything is measured by it, how much money it makes or whatever, you know, and it, it's, it, that's the, the total enemy of, of art and expression to me, you know, I mean... There was an interview uh, a couple of months ago with Gabriel Yeret, the um, composer behind mm -hmm. English Patient and... Betty Blue, amongst other films. And he was talking about early in his life, before he started composing for film and realising his passion for music, that he would watch films and he would find his own rhythm in a film. Right. And he would see himself in his head composing for the film that was absolutely at odds with the score that he was listening to. I just wondered about your passion for film. Obviously, you're in the band, Pop Willits itself, for a number of years. But before that... Was there a connection that you had with film that you, you had some engagement? Well, at the time, I would have probably said no, but when I look back at it now, I realised that it was something that was really present with me from a very early age. My, my dad loves John Wayne, you know, big John Wayne films. So, so we, we would 
We'd always watch films at home, you know, and, and cowboy films, like The Magnificent Seven, stuff like that, you know, there's, there's great rollicking themes mm. to them, you know. And then I got to an age in the early 70s, I was sort of like getting to be 10 or 11, and the BBC, and we only had three channels in those, you guys won't remember this, of course, but we only had three channels in those days, and on a Monday night, BBC, after the news, around about 9.30, would show a movie, and... By today's template, they would probably be art films almost, but back then they were the films that you would see. They'd be like The Parallax View, Man Who Fell to Earth, All the President's Men, Clute, stuff like this that really are... They're not films that pander to an audience. They're, they're films that invite an audience to join them, you know, and I think that's a very different climate to what we have now as a mainstream concept anyway, you know, and I, I think I was very fortunate to be exposed to that sort of stuff such that, you know, when I got a little bit older and I would start seeing Eraserhead, Betty Blue that yeah. you, you mentioned, that have amazing sonic concepts to them, you know. I mean, not just musically like Betty Blue. I mean, the music that is beautiful. Eraserhead, you know. I mean, I, I loved Eraserhead. And, like, back in those days, you didn't have the surround theatre system. So I had a VHS of Eraserhead, but I also had the soundtrack album. So I could watch the video but play the soundtrack through my speaker <laughs> so it would be loud, you know. And it didn't really matter that it didn't sync up because it was just going... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know. But it was great, you know. I mean, but, you know, these are things that... Are, I, I, I fear sometimes that we don't, uh, we don't push ourselves enough anymore, you know. There's not enough extremes going on. I, when I met Darren, he, he showed me Tetsuo the Iron Man, which oh, I'd yeah. never seen before. I mean, I, I hope that those films are still being shown to people or, or the modern-day equivalents of being shown to people to make them think, Christ, you can do anything you like. I mean, that's the thing. Do anything you like. It's interesting you mentioned the um, 70s films like Man Who Fell to Earth, Clute, Parallax View. There's a great quote by Darren uh, talking about you around the time of him working on Noah, saying that you captured the essence of a film in, in two or three notes. <laughs> Which I think is a compliment. Um, <laughs> but... What's interesting, watching this film the other day, and I stayed for about 10, 15 minutes before you arrived earlier, is that your films have a very identifiable melody. And, and perhaps this is where Lynch comes in with Eraserhead and this, this sense of a soundscape. But it's the bass lines and it's the things that are happening underneath them that really reminds me of 1970s cinema. And obviously Requiem for a Dream is, is the one that really comes to the fore with that. There's an element of classical Hollywood cinema going on, of, of leitmotifs and this melody that draws you in. But at the same time, as you're drawn in, there's a sense of discomfort with what's going on underneath. Well, you know, I mean, I love stuff like Double Indemnity or Spellbound. You know, you listen to the score of Spellbound and it's th that repetition of, of thematic element that when Gregory Peck can't quite remember stuff and that music, it's just out of reach, but it's out of reach for his memory, you know, and it, 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 it's genius stuff. And I'd love if I could capture some of that. But it also comes through the, the filter of, you know, Public Enemy and the Psychedelic Furs, Susie and the Banshees, Jesus and Mary Chain and the Ramones, all this stuff that I grew up with that has influenced me musically combined with that stuff, you know, so you kind of... All I'm doing when I'm when I'm working on a film 
it's just trying to find something that gives me a hard on, basically. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, it's just trying to dial in these things. You go, yes, that fucking rules, you know? Because I've always been somewhat uh, self-absorbed and probably somewhat arrogant, but I've probably got more arrogance as the years go on. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because, like, in Hollywood, and not that I consider myself particularly Hollywood, but somebody has got a fucking try to do something different there's a million guys out there trying to be the next Hans Zimmer you know and Hans has got it wrapped up don't bother be yourself (laughs) be yourself and do the things that excite you it doesn't matter that you know we all love money and we would all love to just be lying on the beach for the rest of our lives and pina coladas being bought but like I'm in a situation where I've been very very fortunate to be able to occasionally get paid to write some music I'm going like why not write the music If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I really want to mm. fucking write and work on this film and do something and be sat here, what, 15 years later, and pie still resonates with people, you know. I had no idea what I was doing at the time. I still don't have any idea what I'm doing. I think that's actually the secret. Be clueless and go in naive and... The possibilities are endless. Yes, you've got all your reference points. You've seen all the films. You've heard all the music. And then you filter them through who you are. That doesn't make out that you know, you're right for every gig out there. I don't want to be the biggest film composer in the world. I just want to do stuff that's cool, you know. And I think that's what we all should be doing. Critic Mark Cousins. I, I like the fact that he said that cinema should be a level playing field. Yeah, you Okay, but there are some people who aren't really great. But you need to watch all of cinema to get it. But it strikes me the same applies to you with music. Kind of, you, you've you've gone from uh, Public Enemy, 
and drum and bass through to Tchaikovsky. It's what works in the given scenario. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the opportunity to to play with those things. Black Swan, for instance, I mean, there was no other way to do that film other than it be all about Swan Lake musically, you know, because, like, Natalie Portman's character is there rehearsing, trying day in, day out. That music's going to be played to her, even if it's just on a piano or a violinist or whatever, it will be haunting her and it will be mocking her, telling her how shit she is. She is not making the grade. So many other people have done this so much better than you ever will do it, you know? That's what she'd be hearing with every note. And so, to me, it just said, OK, we're going to take Swan Lake and we're going to bastardise it and we're going to taunt her and terrorise her with it, really. So... That was the most fun I've ever had doing a film score, really, because it was just like remixing it. I got the entire score sort of transcribed and put into my computer, and I just started looking for little bits in it that, I mean, there couldn't be two more different writers than me and Tchaikovsky, you know what I mean? I mean very different, but I could go into his score and find a one-bar loop or a four-bar loop and go, oh, you know what, that, that maybe is something I would like to delete a lot of notes out of it something, and just find these elements that then I could add a little bit of something on top of, you know? I think if you're having fun with things, if you're excited about the things that are coming towards you, you can surpass yourself, really, you know? I mean, trying to fit into a box of we need a Hollywood score or that type of thing, it's, it's, it's the death of creativity. Look at the score for um, Under the Skin. Yeah, It's like, it's genius and it, it, it's unique and, it, and it, it's a voice. We need more voices the jobs just go to the same guys or the same company of guys all the time. So you get this, like, wallpaper of film music that's just, like... I'm sure they're all great guys and whatever, but who fucking cares, really, you know what I mean? If I want to hear something that isn't just, like, we need to drive the scene, we need to drive the scene, <laughs> driving the scene. I want to hear something that actually is a, another character in the film and... And it's not the fault entirely of those composers. It's the fault of the filmmakers because their films don't require that because they have no substance in general, you know. Yeah, it's copycat scoring because you've got... You look at the best of Hans Zimmer and you've got something like The Thin Red Line, Malick's film, which is an amazing score. Or you look at early Danny Elfman. But then everyone copies it so much. And American Beauty is the classic example of a score that's been repeated and regurgitated and basically shit out by lots and lots of composers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to ask, before I open it up to the audience, obviously theme and character is, is an essential part of scoring, but for the most part, obviously before Noah, Darren's films are so located within a specific New York. Mm. I'm just curious about the way you, as a composer, react to landscape. This film, for a start, is astonishing in the dialogue it has with the world around it in New York, but this is... Very much Darren's milieu of growing up. I'm just curious to know how you sort of responded to that. It's really weird because I fucking hate New York. <laughs> I really do. Um, I lived there when we did Pi. And, uh, how did you meet, actually? Um, I'd moved to New York in 1996 um, after I left the band. Terrible tale of rock and roll woe. Nonsense, really. But I ended up moving there because of a girl who really found me a lot less interesting when I wasn't in a band anymore. But, <laughs> but, she's okay. Like, but she knew Eric Watson, who, <laughs> who was Darren's producing partner, and he co-wrote Pi. And 
Eric had said to her they were trying to get this film made, and she said, "Oh, you should meet Clint. He likes film and he writes music and whatever." So I've, uh, it was through her really, and um, we've always had this kind of sizing each other up kind of relationship, me and Darren. You know, we're looking at each other, going, "Okay, okay," you know, and you know, we've become. It's it's weird because like you have you have such a close relationship with somebody when you're doing a collaborative thing with them, but I have also also no relationship with him outside of that. You know, other than like sort of, like, hey man, how you doing? You know, our lives don't intersect at all. You know, so it's very sort of creative that the backbone of our relationship, if you like, which is great. You know, I mean that that's cool. But I hate New York. No offense to the good people of New York and everybody who loves it. It's just not me. You know. Um, I'm a small town guy, although I live in Los Angeles now. But, but <laughs> no, but the funny thing is, Los Angeles is a lot of small towns all put together. You know, you, you can live in a part of Los Angeles yeah. and it just be where you stay. You know, whereas New York is this bustling, bit like London, really. And as much as I like to come to London, I've never I've never lived here, and so I, I don't know that much about it. But New York was cruel to me, so I, or at least I felt it was. I mean, but. Whether that has sort of been part of what has created what we've done, you know what I mean? I mean, I said with Noah, I mean, which isn't obviously New York-based, but my score to that is very angry, heavy film, you know, and I find that my state of mind is part of my writing, you know, and so New York feeds me in a certain kind of way, even though I don't really like it, you know, and... Um, Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I was thinking about films that I would love to have kind of known what you would be like scoring it. And the film that immediately came to mind is Taxi Driver. Obviously, Paul Schrader was feeling about New York. Yeah. The same way as you at that like, moment in time. Yeah. That sense of angst yeah. towards it. And Bernard Herrmann, as brilliant as I think his score is, overlays the film with this romanticism that I think offsets the anguish and the rougher edges of the film. I mean, Taxi Driver is just not a movie you could imagine rescoring, is it? Because yeah. the music is just incredible. I mean, he died yeah. after doing it, you know what I mean? If you die after doing Fast and the Furious 7 or something, you're going to go, oh, whatever, but died after doing Taxi Driver, you know. It's amazing, the score's amazing. I mean, that romanticism really yeah. plays and, and offsets and brings that character to you, I suppose, you know. It's, it's beautiful. Living in LA, I drive by the hotel that he died in um, quite regularly, to be honest. And uh, I often, I do often think, oh, "Wow, Bernard Herrmann died in after doing Taxi Driver." I'm sure that doesn't make him feel any better, but um, <laughs> but I, you know, I feel kind of close to something special. Any questions? I guess what I'm wondering is, because um, the music sounds spiral-like, actually. So is this right. something that? Like, was designed, or is this, like, more intuition on your part? I mean, I guess, how, how structured was the process? And the second thing, what's your guilty pleasure when it comes to, like, other film scores, you know? Because you mentioned a lot of these really high-end, very, like, artistic, <laughs> well-regarded, but, like, right, what's right. really the guilty pleasure? I'll give you the guilty pleasure first, right? And it's not that guilty. I don't think it's that guilty. It's Tangerine's Dream score for Risky Business. It's no, fantastic. Good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. But, um... What you're saying is something that Darren actually tries to feed in a lot to to the work we do. And I don't know if he expects us to actually do it, you know what I mean? But there's an awareness of it, you know. Um, with Pi, it, it was perhaps um, tad more random than being choreographed, like you're saying, because, as I said, I was kind of replacing music as we went along. But 
one of the things I, I, I love, and well, what I want is when I work on a film, I want to be involved as early as possible. I want to spend a lot of time around the film because if you are around something for a long time, it becomes part of your thinking such that you don't have to think, oh, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z tomorrow. It just becomes the natural process because that's what the film is wanting you to do. You know, you kind of live and breathe it. You can be working on something and... I don't believe, for, for instance, if you're going to write 60 minutes of music for a film, that you can do the best job of that in three weeks. If you've got three months to do that, it's not that you need the, the extra time to actually physically write the music. What you need the extra time for is to take on all these thoughts that are then filtered through the fact I'm doing this film and I'm thinking about numbers or I'm thinking about uh, the stock market or like... Uh, bad industries trying to get hold of your secrets or whatever but but it becomes part of your thing it's such that you know you could be like suddenly wake up in the middle of the night you fall asleep with the tv on and some other film is on and you go like oh you know that's a cool idea that and i think that's that, the only way you can do that is by having some time with, with it you know that's what pisses me off really you know it's like you make a film you know it's, it's not something you write music from it's not something you do in five minutes you know it takes time to do something you care about and something you think is actually worthwhile for somebody to spend their money on and, and spend some time with, you know. You're expressing something. I'm not here to just to do a job to get the film from A to B. I want to do something that makes me feel something and hopefully makes somebody else feel something, you know, and that takes time to do. I'm not sure if that answers your question or not, but... Uh, <laughs> how, how much research do you do on a project? Well, I like to do a lot of research on projects. I mean, like I say, I don't know how much it actually helps, really, at the end of the day, but what it does do, it sort of gets you in the frame of mind, you know. I did a film for the BBC called United that was about the uh, Manchester United football team that died in a plane crash in 1958, you know, and I, I did know that story already, and even though I'm a Wolves fan, I was really excited to do that film because I grew up knowing that story because Duncan Edwards came from Dudley, which is by Stourbridge where I'm from. You know, it's something I grew up with. And to do a film that I was aware of that the backstory of and, and, and you know, I just think it helps focus your mind, you know. I, I, think, I think research and caring about it is, is paramount to the job, really. Been told we've got time for another question. Yeah. I know it's probably been touched on a little bit before, but um, when you decide to work in a film, do you ever begin composition uh, before the film arrives, sort of working on it preemptively? I do, to be honest. I mean, Pi is a great example of that. Cause it was the first film I did, and um, I was very nervous. I, I, I had no experience of this, you know. And um, Darren had given me... When we first met, like I said, he introduced me to stuff like Tetsuo, The Iron Man, and we talked about music that we liked and didn't like as far as... Well, all sorts of music. I mean, we definitely uh, hit it off over our love of hip-hop. The main thing that we sort of loved about film music was John Carpenter. Uh, Halloween, Assault on Precinct 13, which is probably my favourite film score of all time, really. These were things that uh, we sort of found common ground with. So he gave me the script for Pi, and I wrote a piece of music on spec from just all the things we talked about. You know, he showed me, like, artwork done by people who suffer with migraines. And it's just all these different ideas, so I wrote a piece of music from it, you know, just as an idea. And it was a Friday afternoon... And I took it to this office where he was working at the time. And they just shot a bunch of test footage for Pi. 
you know, the black and white, grainy stuff. And it had come back and they were all pissed off. Matty, the cinematographer, it hadn't come out the way they wanted. So everybody was like really down, you know. And I've walked in with a cassette of like <laughs> some music and going, oh God, everybody's pissed off. And I thought, well, I'll play the music to Darren and see what he thinks. But Darren being Darren, he's going like, hey, everybody, Clint's got some music. Let's have a listen, you know. So suddenly there's like a room like this full of people. And they played the music, and and it, it, it went down a storm. I mean, even though the piece actually isn't in pie, it did it did have the do 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 bit in it. But the rest of the music, it did sort of like a sketch of what it would become, you know. And it was a real galvanising experience. Everybody just felt good, you know. The music, it feels real, you know. And and we've sort of continued that really. And I, the thing about it is, is it always fails basically. Um, you write all these ideas, get all these ideas, I have a grab bag of stuff, and then the film comes along and the film just goes, they suck. They just don't work. I mean, but you might get certain things from it, but it's just good to have this sort of arsenal of ideas. But once you start seeing the film, seeing the dailies, seeing the rough cut, the film tells you very quickly what it, what it needs and what it responds to and what's not going to work, you know. Like I said, I like to be involved on a film as long as possible, as much as possible, really. So getting in early and writing some stuff and just, just trying, you know, it, it definitely helps. This is the, um, the second conversation that Clint and I have had in the last year. And um, at the end of the last one, I thought, oh, there's so much more we can talk about. And I feel like that again. I know we have to end. Um, so it's kind of watch this space because this is going to continue. <laughs> um, in the meantime, many, many of Clint's scores are available on soundtrack what i've now decided to call the despair trilogy of <laughs> pie requiem for a dream and the fountain if you don't have them buy them listen to them because they they literally are like movements to listen to on cd separate of the film thank you so much to the barbican for organizing this event but most of all can you please join me in thanking clint mansell oh, thank you thanks for coming Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Clint Mansell. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support film at the Barbican, you can subscribe via iTunes or Acast or visit barbican.org.uk slash archive. And do tell us what you think of our Screen Talks archive. You'll find us on social media at Barbican Centre. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.